If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to go to the book of Ephesians with me this morning, not to the book of John. It's been a peculiar week for me. I had been studying passionately to preach from John chapter 8, looking at verses 30 to 36, and uh, Lord willing, in two weeks we'll do that. But as I was studying and preparing and thinking about this Sunday, it's the first Sunday of February, we would have the Lord's table. I just couldn't shake this sense of what I would like to speak to you as a church about. And um, this week, Brother Russell and I will be traveling. We head out on Tuesday to Vancouver, uh, representing Mile One Mission and Calvary Baptist. And I actually have to speak at a conference there. We'll be addressing about 800 to 1,000 pastors on Thursday morning and then preaching at a church out in Vancouver on next Sunday. And Brother Russ will be headed to Toronto and be preaching at a church in Toronto and various meetings and I was looking through what I was going to preach next week there because the pastor had asked me to specifically deal with the subject matter of prayer. And in my studies for that, I came across this particular passage, and I couldn't shake it. And I went to Russ, and I said, Russ, uh, you know, you come from a Pentecostal background where you guys really do listen to the Holy Spirit, and us Baptists could learn a lesson from that because I've been sitting in my office thinking that the Spirit is leading me, but the way often a Baptist thinks is the moment he thinks that way, then he starts to doubt, and he starts to wonder what's going on. And uh, Brother Russ was used of God, and actually Brother Steve as well, as him and Dave had had some studies together and had been dealing with this particular subject matter. And so this morning, as we come to the table of the Lord, I want to challenge us with this great expression. What's so great about grace? And really look at the subject matter of grace. And so take the book of Ephesians, and it's one of the great letters, prison epistles of Paul, and he writes in verse 1 of chapter 1 these words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, Blessed be the Lord and Father of our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if you write in your Bibles, underline that expression. Let me say it again. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And folks, I want you to get when before God ever said, let there be light, he had thoughts of you and I. That we should be holy and blameless before him. And this was love motivated. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I don't know if you're seeing a pattern here. I had a great uncle. I won't name him since I'm back in Newfoundland now and some of you might know who I'm talking about. But this particular great uncle that I had, I loved him. But I found him a fascinating contradiction as a man. He lived his life as a poor man. He drove around Harbor Grace in a beat-up car. He was always at my grandmother's, always hoping for a meal. Whenever he came, he'd ask my grandmother, what's for supper, what's for dinner? 
And probably the most peculiar thing that stood out to me was he honestly loved to have an entire bowl of kidney beans. And he would eat that as a meal. And yes, for you younger people, I thought that was bizarre. And I would watch him eat it, and I'd almost get the dry heaves just watching him eat it. He wore old clothes. He never seemed to have money. I'll be honest, he wasn't one of those uncles that ever gave me money. He always gave me advice about money, and none of it ever made sense. Truthfully, if you want to know the truth, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old, I often felt sorry for my uncle. And I was sad on the day that he passed away. My uncle lived in a small, modest old house. The house needed painting all the time. It needed a lot of cleaning. The lawn wasn't mowed. The windows were dirty and often needed replacing. And inside the house, I remember the few times I went in, was in there, it had that musty old smell that you might have remembered from certain homes around the bay. The furniture was bare. Some of it was in disrepair. The cupboards were mostly empty. The bedroom held only one thing, a bed. My uncle was a simple man who lived a simple life. Now, I want you to understand, he was a loyal, loving, gentle man, and he was fun to talk to. He always had fun stories, but he didn't seem to live life. He just seemed to survive it. And when my uncle died, my mother and some of the family were given the responsibility to go and clean out the home that he lived in, and to everyone's shock, when they cleaned out his home, they found thousands of dollars. Let me tell you, tens of thousands of dollars. Uncashed treks, a cutlery drawer that had several thousand dollars wadded up in the back of it. My uncle had lived life as a poor man when right where he lived, there was access to all kinds of money. He could have had a wonderful home and a nice car and a clean and new clothes and any kind of food he wanted, yet he chose to live poor. So Calvary, this morning, I want you to know in these verses I've read from Ephesians that this letter is written to us as a wake-up call. In essence, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus and telling you and I today, stop living poor when you are rich in Christ. What's so great about grace is that we're rich in Christ. As you've heard me read it, we have access to the immeasurable riches of grace and that of an almighty God. And yes, it's true. Ephesians is a letter about unity and power and sovereignty. But Ephesians is also six chapters about love and grace and peace and mercy and being rich in Christ and having the strength of Christ and having a purpose that only God can give you and having hope and joy and promise and blessing. And I would submit that is what everybody in 2019 is looking for and few find. In fact, in the very first chapter of this, as I've read to you, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Did you notice it wasn't some spiritual blessings? It wasn't most spiritual blessings. Paul says, listen, church, you have access to every spiritual blessing that can be found in Christ. Amen? All right, we'll wake you up. This book in our Bible, friends, is about grace and understanding what we have and how to live it out. And what better concept for us to deal with, and maybe I think this is why the Spirit led me to this, on the first Sunday of the month in our church, which is our tradition, to come to the table of the Lord. To be knowing about the grace of Jesus Christ bestowed on all those who believe in Him. That's you. Do you realize you sit here right now under the blanket 
of the grace of God. But you know what? That's just the problem. You see, too many Christians live life without knowing or understanding the grace and peace of God. We either don't think we deserve it. We live in a victim mentality today. We live, and I talk to people every day who think, I don't deserve something. They're always waiting for the shoe to drop. They're always waiting for the next bad thing to happen. And when bad things happen, they make massive assumptions that God is angry or God has left them or something's wrong with them or these types of things. And so we either don't think we deserve it and we try earning our way into it or the opposite is true. We take it for granted. And we act like we do deserve it. And we live a life of unthankful misunderstanding, robbing God of his glory and our blessing. But you see, the letter to the Ephesians is about a church. It's about how to be a church and a powerful church and a healthy church. Ephesians is about unity in the church based on our unity in Christ. And I dare you this week to read the six chapters of this letter, and you'll discover these words like riches and grace. Did you see how many times the word appears in the first seven verses? Can you you not see that Paul wanted you to get, I want to tell you about grace because it's great. He uses that term in Christ all through his letter. By the time you come to the end of the chapter of of the book, sorry, if you will listen, if you let the Holy Spirit do his work, At the end of the day, you'll not only have a strong church and a powerful one, but Paul says, if you and I listen and learn from these words, we will be able to live by the Spirit's work and empowered to do His work. And friends in church, I want to firmly tell you that I believe that churches need to recover their identity as corporate representations of people being joined together in Christ. And so I want you to listen and learn. Allow yourself today to be special. Come to the Lord's table today longing for his grace, wanting to receive new grace, needing to understand grace and desperate then to give grace and be confident in it because then and only then will you and I together collectively experience the deeper knowledge of Jesus' wisdom and we'll see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in this place today. I'll be honest with you, when I struggled about whether I should preach this, I, I do, I, I just sometimes think that in our circles, we are so afraid of an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit that we've de-emphasized the Holy Spirit and we need to find the balance because I believe the Spirit of the living God indwells His believers and works in and through us. And that should excite us and we should anticipate it. And so I want to ask you something right here for just a second. Will you pray with me? Will you ask God to display his spirit to you right now, to work in your life? Maybe there's someone in this room who is searching for Jesus, who has questions about Jesus, who is doubting or hurting or bewildered or confused. Circumstances in life have just overwhelmed them, and they're living life simply by surviving it, trying to make sure nothing cataclysmically goes wrong lurching from weekend to weekend, from thing to thing. But why don't we just pray right now for the grace of God? So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm just going to be quiet. And in the quietness of this room, why don't you pray and ask God to show you his grace today and to show his grace to someone in this room with you today?
Oh God, even in the silence, would you work amongst us? Lord, there's only one thing I'm confident of this morning. Every one of us in this room needs your grace. Lord, I need you is not just a pretty song. It's a real statement we need to say every day. Show me grace, Lord. And be gracious to my friends here in this room. As we make our way to the covenant of the table of the Lord, show us what's so great about grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you know this, but there's more written about the church in Ephesus in the New Testament than any other city or church. This is the most talked about church in the New Testament. Paul establishes this church on his third missionary journey, and you can read about it in Acts 19. Later on his way to Jerusalem, he would call the elders of Ephesus, the leaders together, for what we would call an island summit, and that's in Acts chapter 20. And there he would warn them about attacks from without and within, and about two years later, from Rome, under house arrest as a prisoner, Paul writes this wonderful letter that I've read just the opening verses to you. It's a letter about the power and the sovereignty of God. Already in those verses, did you hear predestined and you've been preordained and all these types of things. But he's writing to a people who lived in a time surrounded by pagan idol worship and the practice of magic and superstition and all of these things. The supernatural was high on the agenda. The culture was anti-God and anti-establishment. Well, let's just say the culture was anti. And I don't know about you, but does that sound familiar? Does that not sound like a 21st century culture? But the church is struggling. You see, the big question for them was actually about power. They were wondering who actually has more power. They had seen God work when Paul come, came, but, but now they were kind of there all alone. And so they were wondering, who has more power, God or the emperor? Who has more power, the temple to Artemis or Paul? But I think that they probably thought certainly they lacked power. And so Paul's letter is an astounding declaration that they not only had access to the same power he did. And when I say that, I want you to think about what he says in those first seven verses. When Paul says you have access to this, uh, every spiritual blessing, consider who Paul was. Paul was the preacher who raised people from the dead. Now, nobody panic, but he once preached all through the night. A guy fell asleep, fell out of a window, broke his neck and died. Paul went down, raised him from the dead. Imagine if every pastor had that power. Man, you'd never get out of church, right? This was who Paul was. Paul is the guy who could do miracles. He spoke in tongues. Everywhere he went, people came to the Lord. He was this powerful guy. He, could, he was in a, a prison in Philippi, and he sang and he prayed, and God sent a heavenly sent earthquake. He cast out demons. In fact, Paul's faith and use of God was so powerful He's the preacher, are you ready for this? Whose handkerchief cast out demons. In Acts chapter 19, we read, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hand so that even face cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Can you imagine that kind of power? 
And Paul tells this church, hey, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the grace of God that is so powerful and so amazing and so incredible that this riches and this grace, not Satan, not Artemis, not the emperor, would or could stop them or defeat them. You have this power. Why? Because they are in Christ. And I just wonder if you realize, church, that we have access to that same God and that access to grace. The truth is that what we know about God intellectually and what we do for God practically has a way of being broken apart in our lives, if we're honest. One commentator says, Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart in our sin-wrecked world. He begins with this exuberant exploration of what Christians believe about God in chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then like a surgeon skillfully setting a compound fracture, he sets this belief in God into our behavior before God so that the bones, belief and behavior, knit together and heal. Kyle Snodgrass puts it even further. He goes, this letter requires us to change our inner being and character in a radical way. He says, life can no longer merely happen. And that is the dilemma of the 21st century human being. Life just happens. There's even derogatory statements about it. Life happens. But that's not true for the Christian. For all our activity must now take place in, to, and for the Lord. Truth and love as defined by Christ become the twin forces guiding all else. In fact, Ephesians has more focus on truth and love than nearly all the other New Testament documents, maybe only beside the Gospel of John. And so if you notice, just in verses 1 and 2 of this letter, you have a very simple greeting. If you notice, it only took me a couple of seconds to read it. Yet, verses 1 and 2 are filled with double descriptions and double identifications and double greetings and double sources. And this is what I want you to focus on as we come to the table of the Lord. Because these two verses set the stage for the church that they were to need and know some things. And I want you to need and know this as we come to communion. See, they needed to know and we need to know and see that this letter is from God. That they are called by God. That they have received two great gifts from God. And that it is God who will always keep supplying those gifts. How? By his grace. And so I want you to notice first, if you're taking notes, Paul's description of himself and God's call on his life in verse 1a. Notice what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, normally when you read your Bible, you get to that first, you kind of whoop, you go right by it. But stop and think about what he's just said. Paul has told this church, that he is an apostle. That is not something you would say lightly. An apostle was a sent one. The apostle was a unique office of the first century because the apostles were someone who had physically seen the resurrected Jesus and had been taught by him through direct revelation. This is something Paul had experienced. So Paul says right out of the gates, I am an apostle by the will of God. What's so great about grace is he's saying, I didn't make this decision. God did. I'm not writing according to my authority. I'm writing according to God's. And believe it or not, folks, listen, Paul had some testimony. If we had testimony night, if we all came back this evening to sing hymns of the faith and said, let's have a testimony night, trust me when I tell you, Paul would win when it comes to the grandest of testimonies. He was on his way to Damascus to put people in jail, and God showed up literally 
blinded him with the Shekinah glory of his presence, knocked all of those that were with him to the ground so that they were blind and deaf and couldn't even hear what was going on. And for days, Paul was blind afterwards till Ananias showed up and prayed over him and then the scales fell from his eyes and he was gloriously saved. Now that's a testimony. His life was ever filled though with increasing humility. In fact, only once, as far as I can tell in the entire New Testament, does Paul ever reference his actual salvation experience. Most of the time, it was this. To the Corinthians, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. To the Colossians, he said, I'm the least of the saints. And to Timothy, at the end of his life, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. But he also had experienced the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, Paul wants them to know that the will of God is an important theme in Ephesians. It appears more in this letter than any of other Paul's letters. As one commentator puts it, the concern is not about Christians finding the will of God which often we struggle to do. He actually says, rather, the emphasis on God's purpose with his actions for humanity. The point here is that Paul was an apostle because God wanted him to be. Paul's establishing the power and authority of this letter. It's being from God. And listen to me, folks. Ephesians and your Bible is not some 2,000-year-old letter from an old Pharisee. It is the word of God to us to hear and obey, to trust in and apply. And from the youngest of you here, whether you're young people, preteens, teenagers, young adults, to you as adults, to you as seniors, you will never come to the end of God's word. But now Paul turns to the church. Notice number two in 1B, Paul's description of the church in Ephesus. Look at what he says. What's so great about grace? Look at this. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, young people, listen, don't don't miss this word saints, because often when we hear the word saints in our culture, we turn off and think we're talking about older people. But I want you to get this. You see, the word saint in the Bible means separated one or holy ones. It's not just old Christians who have lived good lives. The word saint here? is for every man, woman, boy, or girl who has truly been saved by Jesus. One man writes, the focus is entirely on God's action and the reference to God's saving work. You and I are holy, not because of something we've done, but because of what God has done. It truly is all about God. So young people, if you trust and believe in Jesus, then you're a saint. You're a saint. Psalm 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So from the youngest of you here to the oldest of you here, when you believe and trust in Jesus, he looks at you as a saint. And we are called God's children, his sons and daughters, but we're called to be faithful in Christ. In other words, we're not just called to be sons and daughters, we're called to act like sons and daughters. And parents, you know what I'm talking about. Have you ever maybe in a little bit of fit of frustration looked at your child and said, would you act like you're mine? (laughs) Some of you just laughed. You tell us out. We do that to our kids all the time, right? You belong to me. You're ours. You reflect us. God says you're my sons and daughters. You're saints. 
And so notice in verse 2b, Paul's description of life in Christ. He says, grace to you and peace. Now again, how many times have you read your Bible, read those opening couple of verses to every book of the epistles and went, hmm, grace and peace to you by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yep, got it. Now let's move on. But think about this. You see, this is mo- so much more than just five words. It's more than a cliche used in some of our mainstream denominations. No, these are words of hope and promise and encouragement. You see, Paul uses these two words as a way of saying right from the start, realize what you have and realize who you are in Christ. Paul, like no other writer of the New Testament, comes close to his emphasis on grace. And I don't think it's any accident that Paul begins and ends all of his letters with grace as if to emphasize that all of life is lived in the parameters of grace. What's so great about grace? You see, this greeting was a bit common greeting of the first century culture, but Paul took it and made it Christian. He says, look at what we have in Christ. We've received grace. We are still receiving grace right now. And you're going to continue to receive grace into eternity. Listen, church, even when Jesus comes back and we go into him and we have our new bodies and we live for eternity with Jesus Christ, don't think that then you stop getting grace. You will then live by grace more than ever. You will live for eternity before an infinite God and you will never come to the end of him. Life will always be amazing and exciting and new and fresh, not mundane. Oh, when I remember when I was a young person raised in a church and I'd hear pastors preach about heaven and all I could envision was dudes with harps and white robes just singing over and over again. And I used to think to myself when I was a teenager, after a million years of that, won't I get a little bit bored But you know what? We get a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll not only sing for the king, but we'll travel and discover things of the king. And we'll experience life and creation as our king meant it to be. And it'll be grace upon grace. And guess what? That brings peace. I love how John MacArthur says, he says, To greet a Christian brother or sister in this way is much more than a wish for their general well-being. It is also an acknowledgement of the divine grace in which we stand and which has made us mutual members of Christ's body and of God's divine family. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 4, 7? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, grace is amazing. It's more than amazing. And then there's peace. Brother John Anderson was just in Israel this past week, and he heard many times, I'm sure, shalom. That is the Hebrew word for peace. But did you know that the word shalom to a Jewish mind means spiritual prosperity or spiritual completeness? Paul is telling this church and you and I that what we have in Christ is unlimited, unmerited favor and unlimited and complete spiritual prosperity. Friends, the bank of heaven is always full and is full of the grace of God. No Christian here has any reason not to be completely rich in Jesus Christ. And so this letter is going to speak about the riches of his grace in chapter 1 verse 7. 
In chapter 3, verse 8, it's the unfathomable riches of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 16, it's the riches of his glory. So church, listen, don't live like my uncle who was rich but lived poor. Rather, live free. And that's something I'm going to preach about in two weeks, what it means to live free. And so finally, in verse 2b, notice, Paul's description, who, who supplies the life in Christ. You see, notice what he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll only have a grace life and a peace life if it's found in Christ. And that's what this table's all about. This is where we celebrate and we reflect and we examine ourselves in the mirror of God's grace. And that should and must always amaze us. And did you notice what I said? Because everybody thinks of 1 Corinthians 11 and says, let a man examine himself and see if he be worthy. But listen, folks, we misinterpret it. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not expectations from others or even expectations we put on ourselves. But rather, examine yourself in the grace of God. See, this letter, Ephesians, is filled with acknowledgments of the deity of God. And so that phrase, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, notice that little conjunction, and. It means that the two together in equality, it is God who is our Father and Jesus Christ who is our Creator and our Redeemer, and He gives us all this grace, and that gives us peace. And Gary Smalley wants us to know in a city with many sinful distractions like Ephesus was, Paul wrote so that Christians would know what God thought of his people. Can I tell you this, church? Listen, God cherishes us. You are cherished by God. You see, what does the world want in the 21st century more than anything else? From the youngest of you to the oldest with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and MySpace, well, I think actually that might already be dated, all of the different things that we do deal with stuff. What do we all want? What do we all desire? More than anything, is it not relationship? Is it not to be in relationship? A relationship in which we are accepted and valued and wanted? We desperately long for the esteem of our peers. But seldom few people experience the real thing. So many people party with all kinds of people and yet never feel like they have friends. Think about it. Young people... Why do we have countless stories of teenagers who accept life-threatening dares in the hopes of being accepted by their peers? You know, it wasn't too long ago when teenagers were swallowing Tide Pods. That's a real thing. Why would they do that? To the point where the Tide uh, people had to actually make new commercials and change the packaging of their stuff so that it made it harder for people to get into them. But why would teenagers do that? Because they wanted to be accepted. They wanted to look cool. Why do business people, those of you in the business world, will be so tempted to compromise your ethics or your integrity if it means you can join an elite inner group of people? We read of men and women who are driven to succeed because they believe the lie that says their value is determined by the quality and level of their performance. Or how about the teenager or lonely single person who sacrifices his or her purity for the chance to experience closeness and the feeling of being wanted. But listen to me. For the Christian, none of this futile struggle is necessary 
Because we've been chosen by God before time ever began. We belong. We matter. We've been accepted. No longer outcasts or second-class citizens. We are part of his family. And so, what's so great about grace? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. And then we'll come to the table of the Lord. Number one, we are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by the grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, why? So that no one may boast. And I love this, for we are his workmanship, that workmanship word is the Greek word poema, where we get our word for poetry. Paul is saying, we are the poetry of God, created in Christ Jesus for his good works. What's so great about grace? We stand by grace. We stand by grace. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you are saved by grace and you stand in grace. And know what? You serve through grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, right? What I read already. By the grace of God I am what I am, Paul said. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. And as you are saved by grace and you stand by grace and you serve through grace, oh, listen, especially our dear senior saints, you're sustained by grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Oh, and church, listen to me. Not only are we saved by grace and stand by grace and serve through grace and we're sustained by grace, but listen, God can minister grace through our speech. The way you and I talk to each other. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Notice this, that it may give grace to those who hear. You know what's great about grace? Is when you live by it, you can actually give it to other people. And then God gives grace to grow. 2 Peter 3, verse 18 but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternal eternity. Amen. I'm telling you, man, grace, grace, God's grace. And so I want to ask you a question, and then we're going to come to the table of the Lord. It should be the most obvious question for me to ask. Do you know the grace of God? Do you know what it is like to live under the banner of God's loving grace? Amen. Do you know how to live by grace? If you're here this morning and you would say, Pastor Steve, I love what you're talking about. It appeals to me, but I don't understand it. I don't, I don't know if I have it. I, I, I have all these questions or I have all these, these nagging doubts. Well, listen to me. Just confess your sins. Give up your rights and be one with Christ. Trust him. Trust Jesus with your past and your present and your future. Don't depend on yourself. You're going to be a lousy God to yourself. Don't do it. Go to God. Don't trust in your church. Don't trust in your family. Don't even trust in your good works. And most of all, don't be weighed down by your failures or mistakes or your ugly decisions. Rather, just come to Jesus. Give him your goodness and your badness. Call upon him. Believe in the name of Jesus and be saved. 
And you will know grace personally and experientially, and it'll change you. And so, I agree with the man who said this. The Christian faith is not an attractive set of ideas or a nice avenue to follow. Rather, it is so deep an engagement with Christ, so deep a union with our Lord, that Paul can only describe it as living in Christ. What's so great about grace? Well, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen? So loved us the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. And oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God and the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Amen? Oh, my friends, and listen, great things he has taught us and great things he has done and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. And so may we all say today, praise the Lord, praise the Lord and let the earth hear his voice and praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, things he has done. Amen? Amen. That's what's so amazing about grace. Let's pray. Father God, as we now come to the epitome of grace, the table of the Lord, I pray that if there's any man or any woman here who is searching for you, that right now in the quietness of their seat would cry out to you and say, Lord, I'm here in this service and I don't even get it. But something about this sermon, something about these verses, something about what I see in people's lives here has gripped my heart. And Lord, I want to know you. I don't want to simply survive life and hope I can live as many days as I can. I want to thrive under the goodness of God's mercy and grace. I want to live for eternity. I don't want to live under the motto of the world, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die but rather live that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And may that be the attitude of us all as we come to the table of the Lord. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.